Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The business has to pay. We do have to make an income. And whilst we have the ethics that prevent us from sort of, you know, profiteering and making money in certain ways, we've still had to somehow make the ethical way of farming productive. So it means a lot of hard work. You know, we're a normal family. <laughs> so it's not always milk and honey. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of On Jimmy's Farm with me, Jimmy Doherty. Now, this is the podcast where we discuss environmental issues and try and give everyone a slice of the good life along the way. Now, I'm out amongst the grass in the paddock today and I'm in search of, ah, here it is, a beautiful wildflower. And I'm looking for the bee orchid. It's an incredible flower. If you haven't seen a bee orchid before, check it out. I'm looking at, well, it must be about 30 or 40 of them just dotted around me right now. And if you haven't seen this flower, it's incredible. This long spike comes out the ground and it has beautiful flowers dotted around the top of it. Flowers are lovely and pink, beautiful pink petals. And in the center of the flower, it's incredible structure giving the plant its name, the bee orchid, because it mimics a bee. And I'm just looking at it at the moment and it's incredible sort of maroon blotchy type structure. Really, really pretty, incredible detail. And in the UK, they tend to be self-pollinated. But in the Mediterranean, like Spain, there is a solitary bee that thinks this is a mate. And so the male of the species flies in and thinks that the plant is actually a female bee. And it tries to mate with it without any success, obviously. Then it flies onto another flower, taking the pollen with it and then pollinating the orchid. Incredible. But I'm out here just to have a look at the flowering at the moment because that would dictate when I put my cows out to graze. And I'm going to wait for these guys to finish flowering. There's still quite a lot of flowers on the go. So I imagine around late July, I will then put the cattle out here to graze off the grass and the clover. This plant, the orchid with a set seed, and then the short grass that will result from all the grazing will give the orchid a fantastic chance to produce more orchids. So it's all about farming with nature in mind sustainable farming and that's what this episode is all about and today's guests I've got a fantastic farming couple it's Ruby and Lutfi the wonderful family the Radwan family and it's about their story of how they got into farming they left their job in London and they moved out to the countryside to start farming and I know what you're thinking you've heard this kind of story before but there's a massive difference because they farm with their religion being the central focus and it's the only farm I've ever heard of before 
that is farming to halal principles. And I thought I knew what halal was, but actually, after this conversation, it's given a total new meaning to what halal represents. So I hope you enjoy the chat, and I'll see you all back here in the meadow afterwards. So, Ruby, Lutfi, how are you doing? Yes, we're doing very well, thank you. Yeah, we're enjoying some lovely sunny mornings and rainy afternoons, so it's all good stuff. All good for the vegetables. (laughs) So where are you today? Are you at the farm? We're at the farm every day, Jimmy. (laughs) We're definitely here this morning. Have you had a busy morning? Yeah, we're actually putting up a new stable for our goats. We've increased our dairy herd of goats recently and... During the winter, we realised that it's a problem, obviously, during lambing and kidding, as you probably know, you've got to have good facilities for dealing with any problems, getting them in out of the cold if you've got a ewe that has had lambs and they're not too well or anything. So we've been planning it anyway. We've got a big sheep barn, but this is sort of a step up. It's mostly for the goats. It's going to help us with milking. And today I've just been pegging out the area for it. And we're going to crack on, get the foundations put in there and then start putting up a timber set of stables, really. So that's our big project for the next few weeks. Wow. So you guys have been busy then. Yeah. This morning I dropped off our volunteer, our woofer, who came from Ohio and he was working with us, volunteering for three weeks. And he's just flying back from Heathrow back to Detroit Mm -hmm. this morning. So that's my morning job. (laughs) Wow. So you've got help coming in as well. That's fantastic with woofers. Explain what a woofer is, because a lot of people might think they're dogs. Uh, (laughs) No, they're not as obedient as dogs, actually. (laughs) But yeah, they're great fun. Lots of different people from all over the world want to come and just get some experience or maybe learn English or just do something different. Mm -hmm. And this guy came, he's actually a business manager and a consultant. So very different. Yeah, but we get get all sorts. I mean, that's the nice thing is it's like an addition to the family for a while. The best ones, you really do take them on. They become part of your family. Sometimes the work's variable. Sometimes you repeat what they've done. You find they've weeded out all of your parsnips rather than the weeds. But, you know, it's sort of a bit of give and take. And it's quite nice. We have them come over and have a few meals with us together with the family. So it's a good feeling. So it's an organisation that you join worldwide? Yeah, worldwide opportunities for farming organic or something. Farms. It shortens to woof. Yeah, it's worldwide opportunities on organic farms, I think, is it? So basically people can turn up, help out an organic farm, learn some stuff, connect with nature, all that kind of stuff, which is lovely that, you know, you're offering that opportunities. But you guys aren't born into farming. You're not from necessarily a farming background. Tell us about your journey into farming. Well, it is sort of multifaceted, really, I guess. We both were brought up in North London, so we're Londoners, lived a very urban life, probably. I was always attracted to the environment and environmental issues as I was growing up as a teenager. So for me, it was very important. Ruby came from an equally important direction, really, with an interest in psychology and sort of mental health and well-being. So in a way, it was a sort of perfect marriage we got together. I came up here to Oxford to study. Ruby had done a degree in psychology. I came up and was studying geography, doing my research on irrigation and soil and water conservation, and then went on to teach in the geography department on sort of rural development in a general sense. So very academic connection. We had a young family developing. We had sort of moved from London, moved out of Oxford to Bladen, which is in the countryside. So we'd been on a sort of journey towards an environmental sort of connection. We felt that was really important in our lives. 
And I trained aromatherapists and reflexologists, so became very aware of mind-body connection and being much more holistic. Mm. And we then, kept a few backyard chickens, yeah. growing our own veg. We had a little allotment in Bladen for a while. Didn't do very well with that. <laughs> no. So it's sort of progressing along that route. And we were at the route, I guess, a lot of people reach coming up to our 40s, late 30s. We've been in Sudan, for example, and we'd romanticised the English countryside so much, reading all these James Herriot books about... Because you know, 45 degrees centigrade there, <laughs> yeah. so we just wanted snow. <laughs> so, yeah, it's sort of reached that point, I think, for a lot of people where you would have an idea like, hey, let's sell everything and start a farm. And then you say, no, don't be stupid, keep your job, and you don't do it. I think the interesting thing with us was that somehow neither of us put the brakes on the idea it progressed. We started looking for land and we literally went for it. We sort of plunged in, eyes shut and sold our house for, you know, a handful of beans, moved on to this empty patch of land. And that was the start. I mean, can you add anything, Ruby? Well, you probably don't need to say all the other stuff. You can tell all the bad <laughs> stuff, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could, But it's interesting. The way you're describing it is very romantic and often you need that romance because a lot of people get stuck in a rut or they're bored with a nine to five and they want to leave their job and somehow there's this pull of a wonderful way of living or there's this element where you've got a yearning desire to grow food and connect directly with nature so which sort of camp do you guys lie in? Well, I think it sort of evolved, didn't it? I think the fact that we were both from London, I know I was, you know, brought up in very much a city environment. So the garden was just for flowers and a bit of lawn. But once we got married, I was quite young. We went to Sudan, went to Egypt for Lutfi to do his research. And and I remember being exposed to stuff I'd never imagined. You know, the way we lived, it was so rural, so basic. And I went with an approach of, you know, we're so civilised back here in London and isn't this sad living without pavements and <laughs> and all this and it took a whole year of living there realizing that I had so much to learn and we in the so-called civilized world had really lost it actually and this so-called simple folk living you know in basic rural environment was so well connected and so natural and so healthy and that really got us thinking we had to turn our life upside down in a way, you know, mentally in our mind, not physically sort of making many changes. But real change comes from inside. And I think we had changed over the years because that was like 10 years of experience in different places. And when we got back home, we did actually, like you mentioned, have a bit of a yearning then to really experience this for ourselves in our home environment. So we just started looking yeah. for appropriate bits of land that we could afford. And all we could afford was literally just a piece of land, agricultural yeah. land, with nothing on it. So it was a lot of hard work. And that's where the sort of the dark side comes yeah. in, because <laughs> it was an adventure out of ignorance mm. that ended up a bit yeah. of a nightmare. <laughs> I think that was a, a sort of redeeming yeah. feature of how we started was that we didn't think too much about it. I could have the probably, reality. yeah, I could have been settling into my post at Oxford, which, you know, was quite comfortable. The existence was comfortable. But you mentioned push factors. Mm. I was getting a bit frustrated and probably depressed with teaching. We were just sort of like teaching the same stuff about environmental change and the issues, rural development, third world issues. Nothing was really changing. And I was just educating another generation to possibly work in, you know, the UN or overseas aid and just keep the whole system going. It was a bit depressing. I'd loved the work we'd done abroad. But part of the push factor was that I felt really 
that wasn't going to make a change. So we wanted very much to focus on the personal, on our own family, the small changes we could make within the community and the environment that we could and control. Ourselves. Yeah, and yeah. Our, mostly ourselves. Yeah. Our, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but you need that romantic element, don't you? And then the idea of frustration with things not moving forward in terms of environmental change and wanting to get to sort of grassroots level. But you talk about sort of the naivety element. I think that's absolutely vital because if you knew all the trappings and all the ups and downs, you probably wouldn't even get involved. So I think that's really important. But to put it into context, for you guys to start, so not only are you getting into farming that you had no experience in. And then you wanted to, you know, set up obviously to run a business because a farm has to be a business. On top of that, you've got a family and you built your own house as well. I mean, to set off and build your own house is a massive undertaking anyway. But on top of that, set up a farm and run a business so you can sustain yourself. That's no easy task at all. So tell me a bit about the house building side of it, because I think that's fascinating. Well, it is overwhelming, actually, but Luffy has this great can-do approach to life. It makes everything seem so simple. <laughs> you think, oh, all right then, let's do that. And, and yeah. it, he always has this approach, and I just go along with it because he has this confidence, you know, all the time. So you think, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And then you start doing it and you realise, damn, this is really much more difficult than we realise, but now it's too late to turn back, so you yeah. have to keep going forward. Do you know what? That sounds basically like my wife and I when we started. I'd be like, oh, so Kayla, we're going to have the farm shop over here, the cows are going to live here, and I'm walking around gesturing in my arms, and I'm pointing at a scrubby old field with nothing on it. And then she's going, oh, God, he must know something. I don't. It's all going to be fine. And absolutely, you don't. All you can see, it's a bit like a sculptor that can see, you know, a sculpture within a chunk of rock. But I always get so far and end up chipping off the nose. It never really works out. But that enthusiasm is really important. But then getting to the nuts and bolts of reality of once you start and go, oh, geez, I've really got to build a house now. Yeah, it's exactly like that. You go around saying, and we walked the area, didn't you, on the land? We're just walking, that's, you know, so many steps this way, so many metres that way. And look, he was doing exactly as you described, Jimmy. He was saying, yeah, so it's going to be facing this way, and we'll have the windows in. And I just couldn't see it, but I trusted him. (laughs) Yeah. But it does mean you're running ahead of yourself always, you know, and (laughs) you need that sort of backup. And the family have been amazing, of course, but even we could do with more backup. In a way, it's a sort of double-edged thing. It's great what we've done, and it's really brilliant when you look back, you know, 5,000 trees planted, a house built. There is now a real vibrant ecosystem here. But we could have done so much more as well. (laughs) We have so many other ideas. But yeah, we've had to sort of accept that you don't finish things, you move on, you do what you can. The limitations, yeah. yeah. In fact, in my previous job teaching, things were very formal and sort of set out and you could be a perfectionist. So I regard myself very much as a failed perfectionist now. I've had to accept not mediocrity, but accept that, you know, I don't finish things. I'm not controlling things. They're not completely planned out. And we just go along with, with what happens. I'm so glad you said that because I feel that I'm part of your club because I can look out across the field now and see stuff that I haven't finished. So I'm pleased you said that. But I think what's really important and the thing that I've really learned is that through my experience over the last 20 years is when I started, it was all about, yes, we can. Yes, we can do that. And we are going to do that. And it's important that you keep that because I find myself... I don't want to become that person who says no all the time. No, no, I tried that. Oh, no, no, no. I think it's really important that you keep the 
yes attitude because the world's full of people that can say no. And if you want great change, you've got to persuade those naysayers just to say yes once. And that opens up the door. So I think keeping that attitude is really, really important. But tell me about the house. So you didn't build the house conventionally, did you? No. And that's like everything, really. The ethos of the farm was always to sort of see those connections between the way that we live on the land. So, I mean, we didn't just go into it to be chicken farmers, do a sort of single venture type business. We wanted to have diverse animals, different crops, use the outputs from one as inputs into the other to process the wool from the sheep, to spin. Ruby's now making a lot of soap. That's something we've been doing for a while, but we're actually doing that on a bigger scale now. So we've always sort of looked at this holistic, sustainable way of living. And when it came to building the house, we wanted it to be something that reflected that and was using resources from the land. So I'd naively again seen a few mud houses in Senegal, West Africa, in Egypt, and I'd actually had an experience of building one with, with a group of people in Senegal um, as a small one on a farm where I was working on a reforestation project. And I thought, well, that's easy. I can do that. And it's a clay soil here. So we've got an abundance of clay. So it's literally a clay house, clay, sand and straw. You find cob buildings in the UK, particularly in the southwest in Devon Cobb is quite a common type of building. You might not notice them. They often have lime rendered exteriors, but they have very thick walls, which gives it away. So it was a traditional way of building. You can own the construction process. You know, you're not bringing in materials. You're not relying on stuff that's got embodied energy from how it was created. The only energy is your backbreaking effort of digging and mixing and slapping it on the walls. So that was the principle. And it's actually really easy. I mean, you know, I don't know if you work with Cobb, but if you came down for an afternoon here, I could show you the basic principles in a few hours. The mix is quite straightforward. You get a feel for it. We don't even measure out things. We sort of got used to knowing the right quantity of sand, mixed with the clay and then the straw to sort of give it the tensile bonding sort of strength. And then you work your way up and just keep going. And it was very backbreaking, but it was a family effort. We all worked on the cob. What was the phrase we had? If someone had done something wrong, we'd say an extra half hour on the cob. It was a sort of punishment. (laughs) You'd have to put in the work. To build that style of house is really interesting. And to actually construct your own dwelling, there's an element of liberation and to have that skill to say I've built my family's home you know as a team effort together is incredible I mean that it must make you feel a bit like having a superpower which is incredible and it's a funny situation we've built a similar structure on the farm using lots of timber that we cut from our wood and using cob and I love the way you say it's relatively easy we didn't find it easy at all (laughs) but it's an interesting structure when you look at it and what I found is once we completed it inside first of all it sort of blooms with all the natural sort of fungi that sort of comes out of the wood and other bits and bobs then it dies down but it's lovely and cool in the summer it's warm in the winter but when i walk in it it sort of smells natural it's sweet you can close your eyes and feel that you're in the wood when i take a breath in inside that building do you get the same sort of feeling well, that sounds lovely. It doesn't smell of anything else. So maybe because it's been there's, rendered and plastered, and you also could hardly there's, tell there's it's no timber. Cob. Yeah. yeah, there's no um, timber. I know what you mean. I mean, the earthy smell of the cob yes. as we were building it and certainly as it was settling. You get that when um, it rains. <laughs> but no, not so much the smell, but definitely the cavernous sort of insulation. The walls are about 85 centimetres thick. So they're really thick cob walls. And 
you can enter it on a hot day and you just feel like you've entered a cave. It's really lovely and cool and that horrible burning heat outside just disappears. So that, that's wonderful. And then heating it in the winter, as long as you're putting a bit of heat in there. And we actually had the benefit of putting in, because we built it, you know, we put in underfloor heating downstairs. And that's a wonderful way to heat a building. It's just yeah. such a gentle heat emanating out through the, the stone that it keeps it lovely and warm in the winter. As long as someone's out there splitting wood for you. <laughs> <laughs> but it is love, isn't it? So it's a testament to your labour and in a way sort of feels like a flag in the sand to say that this is all your hard work, but you've arrived here on your farm and to, I suppose in a way, feel that you're really connected to your plot. Throughout June on Not Just the Tudors, we're honouring Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee by focusing on queenship in the 16th and 17th centuries. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and all this month with my guests, I'll be exploring the coronations of Tudor queens, queens regnant and queens consort, who wielded power in ways we haven't thought about. Really, when we begin to look at queen consorts, we notice that there's a lot of ways at the Renaissance court that women could hold informal power through their relationship with the king. Then there's the queen who ruled over the Spanish Netherlands and the female Swedish king. You heard that right. What did a 17th century person actually mean by saying, oh, she dresses like a man? If she would have worn male clothing, she wouldn't have been able to rule Sweden. So for a month of all things magisterial and monarchical, look no further than not just the Tudors from History Hit. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
So tell me a bit about your approach to farming, because you're not the conventional farmers that I'd see on a daily basis. Your approach is different. I'd say it's fairly akin to the way that I farm. So tell us about your ethos. So our ethos basically is based on trying to be holistic, which sort of we mentioned about our background, sort of much more connected with the whole system rather than separating things out and just running with the individual things. It's all connected and really trying to be ethical. So that's very much obvious in the way we farm our animals. So we tend to not overstock because we want the animals to express their nature, so free-ranging and pecking and so on, which is natural to chickens, for example. If they were confined in small spaces, that would become destructive and they'd be pecking each other and, you know, that's pretty dangerous, resulting in death and ill health and, and all that sort of thing. So the ethical principle is really, really important to us and we try our best not to compromise anything when it comes to ethics. So it does mean we're never going to earn a lot of money, but we live in a lovely environment and feel good about what we do. Going back to what you were saying about the house, one overriding feeling that I have and probably affects every part of what we do on the farm is this sense of gratitude that we're blessed in a way to have this wonderful environment. Yes, we've worked for it. And along with that gratitude comes a responsibility. So I think the key thing, as Ruby's saying, that we're very holistic in the outlook. We've never put the profit at the head of what we're doing. What we've put sort of center place is this sense of taking responsibility for our actions. So whether that's providing a sustainable home to live in or the trees that we've planted around the farm or the welfare of the animals. We consider this idea of responsible stewardship and there's an Arabic term for that, khalifa, which is the idea of stewardship for the environment. So we feel very much that we don't have a choice. You know, that's not even something we questioned. Everything we do is premised on the fact that the primary motivation is is to create a healthy, sustainable environment from which we can gain our sort of livelihood. Yeah, and Um, I think it grew from the frustration of not being able to change anything out there, mm, you know, mm. climate change and all that. So all you can do is change yourself and change the environment you live in. So this is our little piece of land and we'll farm it in the most sustainable, holistic way that we know how. And of course, as we learn more, we'll change. So Mm. it's not like a stagnant thing. It's always changing. We're always learning. We're always trying different things, making mistakes. You know, what you were saying earlier, the idea of trying different things, that sort of have-a-go attitude, that's part of it. Because actually, it's great fun as well. It can be. I mean, there's some downsides, and we can go into that if you want. There's plenty of downsides. But it's great fun to sort of allow yourself to make different things. Like this morning, we've just been trying some ricotta cheese and some halloumi cheese that our daughter-in-law made. You know, so we're messing around making cheese. We were doing some natural wool dyes using plant extracts for dyeing the wool. We do willow weaving on the farm. We think we can do all these things, as Ruby said earlier, we try. But it's how it would have been in a more traditional, sustainable society. And when you look around in the modern world where we've got all of these resources that are so artificial, we know they're polluting the world around us, that we're so reliant on those technologies and those little gadgets. And yet you could go back to a more simplistic way. I know it's hard and I know it's probably not accessible to everyone. And there are many, many downsides. But there's actually also a great deal of joy in just trying everything and being a jack of all trades. Yeah, I think you definitely have to be a jack of all trades. But, you know, the element, and I've spoken to lots of farmers like yourself, that it's the approach and their entry into farms all about reconnecting with nature and stuff. But your business model has to work because otherwise it isn't sustainable, is it? Because you can't stay on the land and pay your bills in a way. So your business model has to sort of 
pay your way as well. So the produce leaving the farm and all the rest of it. But equally, what is really interesting about you guys is that you're a halal farm, aren't you? An organic halal farm, which I can't think of many other halal farms that I've really come across in the UK. So tell me a bit about the halal element to your farm and why that is important. Okay. Well, I suppose I've just described it really because halal mm. really means mm. holistic and it means ethical. So that's the Arabic word and that's the translation. So if anyone is trying to move towards something that's more halal, that means they're trying to be more ethical and holistic and sustainable and connected. And I think that's what we are. We're trying that to our best ability. And that was a motivating factor for us. You know, yeah. We started to really reflect on what it means and realize, you know, People use this word, most people don't even understand the meaning of it, it's just a term. But that's what it means, mm. and that's our sort of journey, really. And it doesn't really matter how far we get, as long as we're on this journey, and this is the process that we're sort of unfolding as we live, always trying. Um, and of course, we're going to make loads of mistakes and change things around and do things differently and learn. But as long as we keep that in mind, and keep coming back to that and reminding ourselves that's why we decided and that's why we're here. That's what makes it halal for us. If I can describe what the halal process is really for us, to a certain extent it's been reduced just to a sort of simple tokenistic, the slaughter process or the final stage of the life or it's almost like saying grace over your Sunday roast and it's just a label. So it's actually become quite meaningless. You're probably more familiar with the use of the term kosher as being good. You know, you'll use that in common conversation and say, oh, it's kosher, meaning it's good or acceptable. And that's what halal means. You know, it should be good or acceptable. So it's just a word, what it means in relation to food and the production of food. It means that it should be produced, and actually the Quran emphasizes this. It describes halal as being that which is, it uses another word, tayyib, pure and natural. So it's got to meet those conditions of having been natural and pure and healthy. So for us, we felt that the halal meat industry that we sort of see in the UK and probably across the world is pretty much a sort of tokenistic ritual acknowledgement almost of seeking a blessing, as I say, like saying the grace over your Sunday roast, but had no real deeper meaning. It's become a bit of a dirty trade in the sense that there's a lot of money being made selling, you know, halal chicken to Nando's so they can get the customers in sort of thing. It's industrial food production, no different to what everyone else is doing. And we felt, well, that's missing the whole essence of what a religious approach to the environment should be. And probing and looking in the Quran more, what comes up more often is this sense, as I say, of khilafah, the idea of stewardship. And the idea that what distinguishes mankind from the rest of creation is that ability of free will, of choice. You know, the, there's a certain balance or mizan in the Arabic in nature, and it is sort of cyclical, but it lives according to certain balance and harmony. And that humans have a choice. You know, we impact through personal free will, through choice. And we felt very much that we can't really change the global order, maybe, but we want to exercise that ability to choose that free will within the environment of the farm. So for us, it meant sort of going in, as I say, into every aspect of what we do. And you can often have a farm that's organically certified, but the owner's lives haven't changed dramatically. Certainly if they're supplying some of the big chains, it's sort of ticks boxes, but there's no real lifestyle change 
in the way that the actual household is run or the, the way that machinery is brought onto the farm. So we really wanted to tackle it from the root upwards and say, well, look, every aspect of our lives needs to be audited, whether it's the house we live in, whether it's the food that we are eating, whether it's the way we look after animals, the sort of relationship between the ecosystem and the animals that range on the grass. So we sort of went through every aspect and then <laughs> we're crazy, but we then start saying, well, what about the clothes we're wearing, the fibres we're using? What about the yeah, absolutely every aspect? And it's, in a sense, we feel that's the duty. That's the essence of what we would call a halal life or the idea of responsible stewardship for the environment. Just listening to you explain that concept is quite liberating for me because when you go down the high street and you see halal all over the place and as a farmer the concept of halal basically meant to me it's just been reduced down to a slaughter method and there is a difference of how animals are slaughtered in a halal or a kosher way compared to the mainstream and that's down to the animal being conscious so if i for example my turkeys go to slaughter they will go through a stunner they're totally knocked out and then they're dispatched through a nick under the tongue and it's through blood loss. So that's the standard way. But halal, tell me a bit about there's a blessing involved and the animal is not stunned. Is that right? No, that's not actually right. It's exactly the same as you've described it, except for the blessing. So the vast majority of halal, I think 97% of halal meat is slaughtered in exactly the same way using a pre-stun. And that's the method that we adopt. There's a small minority sort of more like kosher and in a sense in relation to say Christianity it's like Jehovah Witnesses not taking blood transfusions it's a minority of the Muslim community that feel that the idea of using a stun is a modern intervention that they don't like so they're similar to kosher 100% of kosher is not right. stunned so for the halal industry, stunning is quite acceptable. We feel our issue with the halal slaughter is that it's mass slaughter in large abattoirs. The electrocution is through electrified water and it's all very hit and miss. So very simply, we would be closer to what you've described, that we individually use a hand-applied stun to the temporal lobes. That renders the animal less aware of any suffering. It loosens the muscles. It doesn't jump around. And then we very quickly do the slaughter in the same way that you would. So actually, there's no difference for 97% of the halal slaughter no in the difference. UK. Well, I think that's really interesting because for me, talking about the death of an animal is really, really important because it's the whole process and we should never hide away from that. But putting the halal element of the final process of slaughter to one side, which I just thought that's what halal was all about, then the approach to your farming in terms of health and purity, I mean, that just opens up a whole new world of the meaning of halal. And it also makes me feel that I'm quite ignorant in that term. But that's a fantastic concept. And it's a shame that not many more people really understand the true meaning and the philosophy about halal when it's applied to farming. Yeah, and I think that's quite understandable for every group, in fact. It doesn't even have to be a religious group. It could be, you know, some sort of other affiliation. You often reduce the membership of that club to a set of rules and regulations, and you do things almost unthinkingly. So, you know, for Muslims, we can sort of tick boxes, five prayers a day. Done Ramadan. Do, <laughs> do Ramadan, do the slaughter the right way. And it sort of becomes a tick boxing <laughs> thing. But it's, it reminds me of the rhyme that Mr. Jones went to church on Sunday, but he went to hell for what he did on Monday. It's the idea that, you know, you sort of do the required thing, but you don't think about the rest of your life. So, yeah, it's sort of peeling back from a ritualistic approach to your faith and saying, well, surely this ritual that I've just performed should actually engender some sort of change within my soul, within my spirit. It's to focus me. It's not to actually accrue a certain number of tick boxes, but it's for those practices 
to generate change within. So the meditation, the prayer, any of the actions that you do in your daily life should engender a sort of deeper spiritual awareness and understanding. Yeah, yeah. And it's clear that you two, after leaving your professional careers, this was something that was burning inside for you to do and, you know, a journey that you had to go on. But tell me about the rest of the team, the family. I mean, were they equally as excited? I mean, have they really adopted it? I think they've all come on board with the sort of ethics of what we're doing. They're very close to nature. They sort of seem to respect all these boundaries in the way that they behave. They've got a sort of awareness of environmental. I guess a strong theme, if you're going to summarise it, is that environmental and social economic justice are things that they're all quite aware of, that Mm. they regard the rights of nature, they're interested in social issues. And I feel all of that is part of being a responsible individual in this world, and I think they've taken that on. I think in, in terms of in running terms of, the farm... Well, they have been leashes, don't they? Yeah. Adam, my older son, does the goats and the sheep and the veg garden. That's sort of his area. That's what he enjoys, and he does that. Mm. You know, he milks the goats as well as take care of them. Julio's very much into foraging, and then he runs the cafe in the campsite. He likes being the public face. Yeah, he loves talking. And his wife, Lamia, who's come on board. We've now got two grandchildren as well. (laughs) They're a wonderful unit because the two of them are so personable and welcoming to people that they're great public face whereas Adam is quiet one and he keeps to himself but he plods on with his work which is you know working close to the animals which is great yeah the girls aren't too interested they're off (laughs) our eldest daughter Asila is she's pursuing a career in writing and she's doing quite well there she comes back and is on the farm she contributes in certain ways she's done a certain amount of the artistic stuff she designed our logo She has helped out with the festival that we do once a year in the summer. And Camilla, she's involved, but very much with the horses while she's here, but she's still doing her degree at the moment. And the youngest one, Ali, is a general dog's body because he's the youngest. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, he'll find his niche, but he's also really part of the team. So it's a nice family team. And we actually employ two or three people that work with us. So we tend to refer to the team here as the Willowbrook Farmers rather than just the Radwan family because... Very much we feel that Chris, Cara and Louay, who work with us, have become equally part of the whole unit, really. And I think they've sort of signed up for the values of what we're doing in equal measure. Oh, go on. Tell me the downside. Tell me the downside. In terms of the downside, it's not been easy. You made a point a couple of times, and I really agree with you, that the business has to pay. We do have to make an income. And whilst we have the ethics that prevent us from sort of, you know, profiteering and making money in certain ways, we've still had to somehow make the ethical way of farming productive. So it means a lot of hard work. We've been very lucky and we've had loyal customers who support us and they've signed up for the values and henceforth they've agreed to pay a higher price for the produce. So it's part of educating our customer base is a really important role in what we do. It's letting people... Diversifying. Diversifying what we do as well. But I think the education is central. If people don't know what they're buying into, they're not prepared to make those sacrifices. So that's been really important. Economically, there are ups and downs at the moment. It's getting very difficult. We've had incredible increases in various things that have sort of taken us to the line. Dealing with the work relationships between the children. I mean, you might want to talk more about that, Ruby, but we have massive issues and rows. You know, we're a normal family. (laughs) So it's not always milk and honey. 
it's never easy with working with families, but I think equally, you know, making it work. In your farming situation, you have to rely on people buying into the ethics, which once they see your story, many people are happy to do that because they love the honesty and they're buying much more than just the product to eat. They're buying into the environmental harmony that you're creating, which is so, so important. And then it's a lovely thing that you've created that your family can either get involved with the farm or move on to a different career. But one thing is for sure is that that farm will always be central in their life. It'll always be something that's there, a connection with nature that they can return to, which I think is so, so important. The other thing I get from you, if you've got so many ideas, and obviously that enthusiasm is burning there, what's the future for you guys then? What's the next thing on the farm? Well, after the conversation we had this morning, we don't know. <laughs> We're looking at the feed prices and everything and the electricity going up. We're thinking, oh my God, you know, what's going to happen? So... I don't know. We're having a few meetings thinking what we're doing, cutting back hours mm. and all sorts at the moment. Yeah. I think funnily enough, actually, this point where you've got it's us here is the most difficult point we've had in the farm. Prior to that, it was a sheer assault of physical work, but everything seemed to move forward. And, yeah. and economically, customer base grew. We started doing events and it, it sort of kept afloat. This is the first time where, ironically, we're more established. We've got the sort of buildings. We built a nice large barn for the first time just three years ago now. And, you know, we didn't have a decent barn to put stuff in for the first 15 years. So we've got a lot more facilities. We're more established. We know better what we're doing. We've learned a lot more over the years. You know, we didn't have horticultural skills, animal husbandry skills. We really feel we're farmers now. But economically in the future... Yes, to sort of watch this space. We really need to see some ideas coming from the kids, I guess, to carry it forward as well and decide where it goes. I'm very optimistic. I mean, I believe that we've set in motion something wonderful and we'd like it to be here, as you say, to stay with the family, whether they're with us here on the farm or not. But in terms of the nuts and bolts, we're really actually at an interesting and quite scary time. So I was saying just this morning, in fact, to the kids that we sort of need to embrace instability because it might be coming and make some decisions, some hard decisions. Well, yeah, sort of um, business decisions. Mm. Obviously, this will be Mm. our home and we won't change. We'll still carry on. But it may be that in terms of the business, it might be taking a little bit of a downturn. It certainly is. So how can we come out of that in a stronger position? Well, we actually, when we started the farm, well, I didn't think of it as a business. I thought of it Mm. as just as a lifestyle. We were going to live sustainably as much as we can. And we've gone quite far. We have Mm. wind energy. We've got solar panels. Did I not tell you I was going to give up my job? You never did, no. (laughs) And, um, you know, we have our own vegetables. We've got an orchard. He really didn't tell me that. So I thought it was a lifestyle change. (laughs) And we were going to keep our jobs. He basically tricked you he basically tricked you but one thing is that for sure that you're talking about which really illustrates the fact is that farming is never static it's always a fluid thing and there will always be changes and that can be either climatic changes or it could be economic changes but I think what you guys have set out to achieve what you've achieved is remarkable and I'd love to come and see you sometime I'd love to come and see what you've done You're very welcome. Very welcome to do that. I mean, a large part of it is opening the farm up. I did say sort of education, but we've always felt that 
that connection between farming and food and individuals is so important. And twice a week, in fact, they're visiting us today, we have a group called Farmability, which is helping people with learning disabilities on the autism spectrum and other disabilities. They come to the farm and we have a loose arrangement with them. They help us with a few little tasks. And it's a wonderful feeling to just create this space for them. And you can see how their connection with animals and just being out in nature is so important. That we find really gratifying. We welcome other visitors, school groups. So that's an area we would expand. It's not been economically amazing, but it's part of the whole ethos of getting that education out there. So I think that's part of the future is working out how to make that also contribute to the farm income, possibly through camping, for example. So yeah, farming does always have to change, but I think it's really crucial for the sort of farming we do to make that connection with your customers because they've got to know why what we're doing is important and how it differs from the sort of the mundane fast food factory farming. Yeah, it's much more than farming just to produce food. It's also it's food for the soul as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Ruby and Lutfi, it's been a real pleasure. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, it's been wonderful to connect with you and to have this chat. So guys, welcome back. I've just found a ginormous patch of bee orchids. Look at those beauties flowering away. Look at it. Truly incredible. So I won't be back in this paddock again until the end of July, which I'll have my cows with me. By that time, these guys would have finished flowering and set seed. I've got to apologise for my croaky voice. I just cannot shake. This cough at the moment is driving me crazy. But anyway, there we go. The lovely Ruby and Lutfi. What an inspiration. Fantastic couple wonderful family and I love their guiding principles when it comes to running their farm I really feel a lot in common with them when it comes to setting up a farm and the trials and tribulations but fully understanding what halal means to them in terms of food production it was a real eye-opener to me because I've got to admit when it comes to halal I just associated it with a form of slaughter a ritual slaughter or meat production but not as the guiding principles for farming itself and working with nature. So I really enjoyed our chat. It's fascinating and we can all learn a lot from these guys. But listen, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please like, subscribe, leave comments wherever you find your podcasts because it really does help new listeners find us. So I'll see you all back here on the farm for another episode of On Jimmy's Farm and hopefully this cough will have gone... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.